All right, so 1 Thessalonians 2. We're going to be just in the first eight verses this morning. Uh, so we won't get all the way through this, this chapter today, but we'll uh, mostly wrap it up, I think, next Sunday. But uh, looking at the first eight verses, um, just so we are clear, we're not very far into this series. So some of you weren't here last week. That's totally fine. Let me give you a quick recap of what 1 Thessalonians is. Uh, it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul and a guy named Silas and a guy named Timothy. They, the three of them worked together to write this, and all three of them had a significant ministry to the church in Thessalonica, um, although it was a very short ministry. Uh, Paul, and we read about this actually in Acts chapter 17, Paul and Silas go to Thessalonica uh, on the heels of persecution in, in Philippi, and uh, they get there, and then they encounter yet more persecution and end up only being there for a very short time. Some, some suggest maybe only a couple of months, maybe three or four, but it was very short, relatively speaking, to Paul's time in Ephesus, which was three years, or Corinth, which was at least a couple years on the first trip. Um, and so the Thessalonians had a very short ex, uh, uh, ministry with the Apostle Paul. And they were pretty shook by that and, and uh, pretty discouraged by it. And so Paul and Silas and Timothy write this letter to encourage this church, to build them up, to help them know that they are loved, that, they, that yes, that though Paul had to leave quickly, he's not, uh, he's not leaving because he doesn't like them um, or love them or want to serve them. He's, he left because of circumstances beyond his control. And so this letter is kind of that follow-up to that visit um, at some point, Paul sends Timothy to this church, as we'll see in the, in the letter itself. And uh, basically, Timothy comes back to Paul and gives him an update on where the church is at. And so Paul writes this letter. That's the overview, uh, basically. So the overwhelming point that Paul's making, and, and actually more than half of this letter is not instruction, it's not correction, it's not rebuke, it's not theological teaching. It is purely encouragement. It is just Paul trying to help this church know that they're loved by, by him and ultimately by Jesus. And so we're calling the series Encourage One Another because that is really the theme of at least 1 Thessalonians. We're going to look at both first and second in this series. Um, but I think that that really is the heart of what Paul's attempting to do in this. And so that came through last week in the first chapter where he spends the whole first chapter just talking about how grateful he is to God for these people. And he just spends the whole first chapter talking through his gratitude for them, for who they are, for, for this church. And that is just such an encouraging and uplifting thing to be, for people to express their gratitude for other Christians. It really is one of the strong, uh, one of the ways that God strongly encourages us through other people. Um, as we get into chapter 2, we are going to see that Paul is not just thankful for these people because he, he has to sort of do this boilerplate thank, thankfulness, but we actually learn that he really, really loves these people. And I think it, what becomes clear as we read this is that as heartbroken as they were to lose the Apostle Paul and have him leave them, Paul is equally as heartbroken to have left because he really does love these people. I think what we're going to see is the, the degree of friendship that Paul really felt towards this, this church, even though he was only with them for a few 
months. And when we think about friendship, I think that's going to become kind of the overarching theme today is this idea of friendship. It's not something that the church talks much about, at least not as I've, as I've been involved in the church. I, I didn't hear a lot about Christian friendship, and it's, there's a few books that have come out in the last couple of years that are trying to explore this subject, but it really, there's not a lot of things on friendship historically in the church even. And so, um, and yet what we see is such a clear picture of friendship in this, in this letter. And friendship really is one of the great joys in life. I don't, I don't know a person who's against friendship. Maybe, like, I don't have a lot of friends, so maybe I'm the weird one that doesn't. You know, but most people like friends and, and want friends. And, um, right, and, like, there's, there's not a lot of people you're going to meet. Maybe a really, really cynical person who only dislikes friendship because they have none, right? So that's, that's kind of the thing, right? We, we like friends, and we, everybody wants to have meaningful friendship. Uh, there was a book written by a nurse uh, named Bonnie Ware, and she wrote a book called The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. It sounds like a super uplifting book, right? Uh, but, but here's the thing. Uh, this book, uh, I didn't read the whole book. I just read kind of a synopsis of, of it. But um, that she's, she basically did um, nursing work for, for hospice care and really cared for people in their last days of life. And as she talked to these patients, she asked them, um, what are your greatest regrets in life? And again, super great bedside manner probably on her part. Uh, let's, uh, let's make you think about all the sad things before you go, right? Well, she did. Anyways, so as she did this, she compiled the five primary answers that she got, and that's what this book is. But one of the answers was this. Uh, it obviously phrased differently from every person, but the, the theme is, I wish I had spent more time with my friends. And uh, she explains in the book, here's a little quote from it. She says, often the patients would not truly realize the full benefits of their old friends until their dying weeks. And it was not always possible then to track them down. Many had become so caught up in their own lives that they had let golden friendships slip by over the years. There were many deep regrets about not giving friendships the time and effort they deserved. And uh, I don't say that to bum you out, okay? I, I just, what I'm, what I'm trying to do is bring into focus the biblical reality that God has wired us to be together. And, and I think as we walk through this, we're going to see that's where Paul's heart is. And, and, I'm, and again, maybe it'll spur some of us on to actually invest in the friendships that we have. And I hope that's the case. And maybe it will spur us on to make new friendships. Um, but, but let's just read through these eight verses. We're, we'll take them a little bit at a time and just talk about what Paul's saying. And then I want to bring it all around to, to what I think the real issue is. So verse 1 and 2, Paul goes on. He's, this is right after his introduction and his greeting and uh, his gratitude for them. He says, So for you yourselves know, brothers, brothers and sisters, that are coming to you, his, his and Silas's coming to them was not in vain. So it wasn't meaningless. It wasn't empty. That's what vain means. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So as Paul begins this letter, this is really the, the 
the body of the letter, really the main points that he's trying to bring to them after expressing his gratitude for them. He's reminding them of the relationship and how the relationship with him began. He, he's, again, he's addressing a group of Christians that are discouraged and disheartened by the fact that the Apostle Paul and Silas had to disappear in the middle of the night. And they couldn't probably say their goodbyes the way they wanted to, and they were hurt by this. And I think one of the things that Timothy probably realized as he got there to check on this church at some point after the fact uh, was probably this idea that, oh man, Paul just doesn't love us. He had to, di- he had to dip out of here. And so Paul's, I think he's really trying to help them understand, no, no, I, we came to you and it wasn't in vain. Even though this relationship was short, this, this visit that I had with you was, was quick, relatively speaking, it wasn't meaningless. And he reminds them that, that he came from Philippi where he had suffered and been shamefully treated, right? You read about this in Acts 16, where they go to Philippi, he and Silas end up getting arrested, thrown in jail, God does this miracle to get them out of jail. Um, And then they end up having to slip away uh, from Philippi and then they end up in Thessalonica. Well, so he's reminding them of all that. But ultimately what he came to Thessalonica to do, which is at the end of verse two, he says, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So Thessalonica was not a rosy, comfortable place for Paul to preach the gospel, but he, he brought through the Lord's help the boldness that he needed to be out there and get the gospel into these people's hearts. And what, he, what he's saying essentially here, I think, is what he's reminding them of is that though this city that they live in is hostile to the gospel, though it is increasingly uh, difficult to live there. Though there is persecution in this city, uh, the gospel still took root in this place and God used it to get this church established. We read about that in 17 of Acts where the gospel is not really received by the Jewish community in Thessalonica, but it's received greatly by the Gentiles. And a great number of Gentiles became Christians through Paul's ministry with them. And so he's just saying, hey, I I came at great risk to you to boldly preach the gospel. Like that's, he's just reminding them, this is love for you that motivated me to do this. So that's the first thing he brings. And then let's keep reading though, verse three. Remember, because this is a a letter, he's writing this in a very organic way. It's not like a, it's not like a bunch of bullet points, point by point. This is a, this is a, a thought that he's expressing through this letter. So it's a little hard for us to preach it in a bullet point kind of way. I'm just trying to take you to the text and show you what he says. Verse three, he says, for our appeal, our appeal is referring to his preaching of the gospel and basically the appeal is always believe in Jesus, right? That's what he's talking about. Our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive so he's, he's still addressing how he preached the gospel to this church. And he's reminding them that they did not preach the gospel from error, meaning what they were preaching was not wrong. It was truth. It was not from impurity or uh, immoral motives. And it wasn't in any attempt to deceive. So it wasn't like he's, he was lying to get them manipulated 
into believing the gospel. So he's, ba- he's just simply saying that the ministry he brought to them was delivered with honest intentions, with good motives, with gospel-centered integrity. Verse 4, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God, who tests our heart. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. Though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. So there in verse 4 through 6, he's just articulating further how his love for them motivated the preaching of the gospel. And it was not intended to please them, but to please the Lord, right? Paul, Paul says in verse five, we did not come to you with words of flattery, as you know. And I think that's funny that he says, as you know. It's like, you can't even accuse me of trying to flatter you people. You know I didn't do that, right? Um, but we, we talked last week about this a bit. We, we distinguished gratitude and words of encouragement from flattery. So Paul's making this distinction. He spends all of chapter one saying very kind things to this church, which in a cynical way, we could probably take and go, well, he's just flattering them. He's just being, he's just blowing smoke, you know. Um, but but he's, now he's coming into this and saying, no, no, no. This is not flattery, right? Flattery is about speaking to puff someone up so that they like you, basically, is the motive, right? So that, you say something to someone in order to get some ulterior motive out of them or from them. And, he, and Paul's going, we didn't do that. We didn't come to you with words of flattery, and you know that, right? And then he says, we didn't come to you with a pretext for greed. So again, the gospel ministry is not about making money off of people or taking from them or getting anything out of them. It's all about giving the free grace of Jesus, to others. And Paul is saying, we didn't, we didn't come to you to flatter you. We didn't come to you because we were greedy for, for, uh, for something from you. And then he says, we did not seek, in verse 6, we did not seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. We didn't come to get our own glory, right? And so he's, he's basically identifying the, the main problems uh, that the church has struggled with for 2,000 years, which is prideful leaders, greedy leaders, people who are intending uh, to, to use people for their own advantage. And Paul's putting himself in contrast to that and saying, no, we didn't come to you with flattery. We didn't come to you getting to get glory for ourselves from you. We didn't come to gain something materially from you. But then he says something really interesting. At the end of verse 6, he says, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. So Paul, remember we said this last week, that Paul, unlike most of every other letter he writes, he does not introduce himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's very unusual for Paul's letters when you read all of his letters in the New Testament. Almost every one of them, he addresses himself as Paul sometimes as a servant of Christ, 
but often he uses the apostolic role that he was given, the, the authority of Jesus that was behind him. He doesn't even address himself as an apostle at the beginning of this letter. And now he's saying to them, hey, we, we are apostles. He's not denying that. But he said, we didn't make demands of you, even though we could have. We didn't come in here with, our, with, with basically saying, you know, Jesus told me to come here and Jesus wants you to do this. Therefore, you must do this. He, he's basically saying, no, no, I did, we didn't come at you with that type of approach, even though we could have, he didn't. And then verse seven, he clarifies even further, seven and eight, he clarifies further where he, where he was at with them. Uh, it says, but we were gentle among you. So he's contrasting making demands as an apostle, though he could have done that. He would have had the right to do that, theoretically. Uh, He didn't do it. Instead, he contrasts that by saying, instead of the demands, we were gentle among you. That word gentle in some manuscripts uh, is actually the word infants, or we were like infants among you, right? And the idea there is there's there's nothing... uh, in human life, quite as gentle as an infant. And um, he's bringing this out that we were not, we didn't come blasting into this, to this situation, demanding that you do all these things. We were gentle among you. And then he describes it this way, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Again, just an analogy, which is kind of interesting for Paul to make this analogy not a lot of dudes would probably go, go this route, right? Um, but he does. Um, and he's using an analogy of saying, just like a mother cares for her infant children in gentleness and care and compassion, we came to you like that. And so it says in verse 8, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. So, he, I mean, you can just hear in, these, in this language how much Paul loved these people and how much he befriended them in the short time he was with them. And you can almost hear the, the regret or the sorrow in his life, in his words, because it's like he, I think he wished he could have spent more time with this church. I always go back to the, the churches like Galatia, where the book of Galatians is written to, or Corinth, where, where the Corinthian letters were written to, and, and all the things that Paul said in those letters that were just like, you could just tell Paul was not stoked about having to deal with these people, Right? He just, he just, they just was so, there were so many problems and, and maybe it would have gotten there with the Thessalonians, I don't know. But it didn't, uh, it didn't get there yet. And he's just talking about this affectionate desire for them, ready to share with them, not just the gospel. Like he came to share the gospel, but it was more than the gospel. It was also their own lives, their own selves. Why? Because this church had become so dear to them them being Paul and Silas primarily, who had to leave right away. So there, he's speaking on behalf of both of them. 
So here we're seeing that the ministry that they, that they had in Thessalonica embodied um, a relationship marked by gentleness and affection and the sharing of life, which I think if we had to come up with one word, it would be friendship, right? Sharing life, having affection for another person. This isn't, you know, romance. This isn't, um, you know, brotherly love. This is a different category of friendship, uh, of, of love within, within the bounds of friendship. And I think that's what he's bringing out. So we're going to stop. That's, that's the only part of this passage we're going to look at. But I, here, here's the problem. I think we can, we can read something like this and go, okay, well, Paul felt very, uh, very warm towards these people. Great. How do we apply this to our lives? And, and we could just very simply go, all right, I guess if he was nice to them, we should be nice to each other. <laughs> I guess you could say that. But that's not, I don't think that's what's happening here, actually. Now, obviously, uh, kindness, gentleness, mercy, a desire to be with others, that all is what we want to see grow in our lives. But the reason that, that we want to get there is because of something more fundamental. And that is because the way Paul is describing his love for this church is really rooted in the way Jesus feels about us. The friendship that Jesus displays with us is, I think, you can draw pretty much straight lines from the way Paul is talking to the Thessalonians to the way Jesus talks to his friends, of which we are a part of. Um, and there's a lot of places in the Bible where we can see this. Um, we can see Jesus embracing friendship with sinners, people on the outskirts of society, people who are not um, welcomed by the religious elites of the day, and Jesus embraces them like the tax collectors, like the woman at the well, like the woman who comes into the party and crashes the party and pours the ointment on Jesus' feet. On and on and on and on, we could look at these stories of Jesus welcoming, loving, caring for these people. We can also see Jesus befriending people who were among the religious elites, going to Pharisees' homes to have a meal, meeting with Nicodemus uh, at a very inconvenient time of day just so he can hear from him. All these things we see Jesus doing. Um, But there's a passage in the New Testament in the book of uh, John where I think we see this most profoundly. And uh, it's actually, I think it's in chapter, yes, 15. John chapter 15. Um, in, in the context of this particular passage, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. So he's only a matter of hours away from his crucifixion. And these are really the last words that he is expressing to the 12 that followed him for three years. And here's what he says. We'll start in verse 12. Because 12 through uh, 17 really is the section we're, we're going to look at. It says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Okay, so there's gospel doctrine and gospel culture, which we talk about a lot here. Gospel doctrine is, I have loved you, so you love one another. That's right. gospel doctrine, 
We're loved by Jesus, gospel culture. We love one another as we have been loved by Jesus. And so he says that. And then he says this, no one, uh, verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Meaning if you trust in me, believe in me, and you're, you're following me, you are my friends. We're, that's how we get into friendship with Jesus. We listen to him. Verse 15, here's, here's what he says. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends And here's why. Because all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. What is the difference between a servant and a friend, according to Jesus here? The difference is that the servant does what he's told, but she or he may not know why they're doing what they're told. They're just doing what they're told. A friend does what is good and right, but they know why. They're told why. They're let in to the situation. And then Jesus says this, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. So in that passage, Jesus is articulating friendship with his disciples. And we, as we learn from couple chapters later, it doesn't just include the 12, it includes all who would believe in Jesus through the message that the 12 started bringing to the world. And, and on and on it goes. So we get in on this. So when we see Paul's love for the Thessalonians, it's rooted in this friendship that Jesus has with him that he's then applying to them. And that's true for us, that we are befriended by Jesus, and therefore we become friends with others. Like I mentioned at the beginning, there's a, there's a couple of books about friendship that have been written recently, and one of them I read just over the summer was a book called Made for Friendship by Drew Hunter. I think he's a pastor somewhere in Indiana. Um, the book is <clears throat> terrific. I'd recommend it if you are interested in friendship on a, from a biblical perspective. Um, But he shares in one of the chapters, he shares five ways that Jesus displays himself as our greatest friend. And I think as we, and I'm just going to steal what he said for you and just read out. So I didn't come up with any of this. I'm just taking it from Drew's book. Um, But I think that what what he highlights for us is actually really helpful. And also we can see the overlap in how Paul addresses this church that we're reading about. The first way that that Drew Hunter draws this out is that Jesus loves us with the deepest affection. Remember how Paul said that he was uh, affectionately desirous of of the Thessalonians. Well, that affectionate desire flows from Jesus' deepest affection. That Jesus looks at you and he has no reservations whatsoever about being in relationship with you. He loves you with all his heart. And he always will. Jeremiah 31.3 tells us that that I have, the Lord speaking, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. There's no end to the friendship that we have with Jesus. And he he is affectionate towards us. 
Secondly, this book highlights that Jesus loves us to the very end. At the beginning of the Upper Room Discourse, which John 15 is a part of, you go back to John 13 where that whole story begins, and it says that um, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. And the end is the cross. He, he loved them, he loved you, he loves all of us, all the way to the cross. And God shows his love for us, as Paul says in Romans 5, that even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon writes this, he says, Christ is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He says, you have often left him, but has he ever left you? You have had many trials and troubles. Has he ever deserted you? He ha- has he ever turned away his heart and closed up his compassion? No. Children of God, it's your solemn duty to say no and to bear witness to his faithfulness. Jesus loves us and he loves us all the way to the end. Thirdly, Jesus loves us in that he lets us all the way in. This is what he says in the verse I read in John 15, 15. But what Jesus means there is that he is transparent with us. He opens his heart. He shares his plans. He doesn't hide anything from us. There's lots of things we don't understand or know. But what we need to know, we know. And God has given us that without having some crazy key to unlock all of this. You just read the Bible and it's like, oh, Okay, <laughs> that's what Jesus wants me to know. He lets us in. He, he lets us know his heart. Fourthly, Jesus loves us because, or is, befriends us because he stirs with compassion for us. Friends are compassionate towards their friends. It's part of the definition of friendship. And Jesus cares for us. He is compassionate towards us. He is described in Hebrews as the sympathetic high priest who invites us to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. And as we look at another Old Testament book, we look at the book of Lamentations, which we preached through a couple years ago. And it's amazing that in the very middle, the exact middle, of that book. That book is very structured in how many verses are in each chapter. And so the exact center of the book, here's what God says to his people in the midst of incredible human suffering and sorrow. He says, for the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he causes grief, he will have compassion according to his abundance, the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. So in the book of the Bible, we have that probably outside of maybe Job articulates human suffering more than any other. Lamentations, right in the middle of that book, God reminds us that he has compassion for us, even though he may cause grief for a moment for our good. All right, last one from Made for Friendship. It says that Jesus befriends us because he speaks to us with candor and kindness. Jesus speaks with straightforward honesty. He is a true friend in that way, right? He tells us what we need to hear, even if he tells us what we don't want to hear. That goes to the book of Proverbs, which says that faithful are the wounds of a friend and profuse are the kisses of an enemy. An enemy will flatter you to get 
to manipulate the situation. A friend will tell you the truth, even if it hurts. And Jesus does that for us. He delivers pain at times in showing us our sin and our need and where we have to turn back to him. Those are all painful moments, but he does so because he is a faithful friend and he loves us. And so I think as we, as we look at this and go back to Second, uh, 1 Thessalonians 2 and see the Apostle Paul modeling this picture of friendship that flows from the heart of Christ uh, with this church in the Thessalonians, I think we, we should be confronted with this reality that Jesus has befriended all of us if we're brought into his family, if we've trusted him, if, we've, if we do what he says, right? Which means we believe in him. If we've done that, we are friends of Jesus. And we ought to then model that kind of friendship with one another. We should embrace friendship in this church and beyond because Jesus is the truest and best friend we could ever have. But because he has befriended us so well, we ought to, like Paul, and like so many others, like John, if you read John's letters to the churches, like these, these men were just friendly and gracious and wanted a genuine relationship with these churches, not because they wanted something from them, but because Jesus has loved them so well. And I think that's the heart. And, I, and again, I'm just going to be continuing to, to hit this point that as we start this fall off, as we get going, I want to encourage you to get plugged in somewhere around here. Like get plugged in. Come to a Bible study. If you're younger than that, go to kids club, go to youth group. If you're in that, in that age group, whatever fits with, with where you're at, just get plugged in. And, and even more than that, I would encourage you guys to plug in beyond the walls of the church. Like not just having us like funnel you into friendship and like try to force you to be friends with people. I think you should actually seek it out. And, and if there's a few people, two or three people in this church that you resonate with and you think, and we, we've been, we get along, I think there can be a real friendship that can grow here. And invite those couple people, those few people to join you once a week or once a month or whatever works for everybody and just get together, read the Bible, encourage each other, pray for each other. It doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be forced or manufactured. But I get it. Not everybody's in a spot where they can do that. So that's why we, we are trying to have opportunities for you to walk into. If that's where you're at and that's what you need, then God bless you. That's why we're doing this. But if you're in a place where, you know, I don't really need the, to, to be funneled into something. I, I can just do this. Then go for it. You know, do, do whatever is right in your situation and stage of life. But what isn't okay is just pulling back and isolating. That's obviously not what God wants for us. We are made for relationships. We are made for friendships. We are made to have a friendship with our God through Christ. And we're also then made to display that friendship in the community of the church. And so I just want to encourage you. I don't know where you're at with all that. I don't know what you need to hear. But we all need friends and we all need to be intentional about it. And so I'd I'd encourage you to start trying to apply what we're seeing into your life and go from there and see what God does in and through it. So with that said, I, I just want to remind you most importantly 
that Jesus is your best and truest friend. He laid down his life for you as his friend. And he laid down his life so that you would be able to be his friend. So would you believe in him today? Would you trust in him today? Would you continue to pour your heart towards him today and then see where that flows into in life with others? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the friendship you've brought to us through Christ. We pray uh, that as we respond to you through song and partaking of your table and, and giving of our tithes and offerings and all the things that we do this morning in response to who you are, I pray you would give us um, a, a real com- conviction that our friendship with you is the highest priority to be fostered and then our